What's up, everybody? It's Chris Wagoner bringing you another episode of 100% Lawyerings. It's disclaimer time. Everything you're about to listen to is intended for education and entertainment purposes only. None of the words that you're about to listen to from myself or my guest are to be construed as legal advice or as establishing the attorney-client relationship. Today, I'm excited because I'm bringing you a conversation that I got to have with one of my best friends and one of the best lawyers that I know, Mike Pinella. And Mike has been practicing criminal defense law for years at this point. He got to start uh, interning and uh, helping out in the Trayvon Martin case. And uh, he and I crossed paths at the public defender's office when we were trial partners early on in both of our careers. So uh, I'm really excited to bring this one to you. I hope you guys enjoy it. Talk to you later. Pretty good, man. How are you? Doing all right. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for uh, anybody who's listening to this that may not know you? Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, My name is Mike Pinella. I'm an attorney. My office is based out of Orlando, Florida. practice all over the state, mainly focusing on uh, criminal uh, trial and appellate work. You and I met uh, many, well, that's crazy to say, but... Many moons ago. Many moons ago now (laughs) at the public defender's office. Uh, out in Vieira, right? Yeah, yeah. And you Vieira. were my you were my trial partner, um, you know, and taught me the ropes, man. <laughs> yeah, you were uh, you were my second trial partner because I uh, was with Sarah Gooden over in Titusville before you. And um, yeah, dude, it started the uh, that was the beginning of a great friendship. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, uh, thanks again for having me here. Uh, I guess just a little more about me and and we can sort of get into it as we go, but I have a private practice called Pinella Law Firm for about five years now uh, that we opened after I left the public defender's office. Uh, I've worked for several different criminal defense attorneys uh, prior to even being at the PDs and and got some great appellate work uh, over the years as well. Just really fortunate for some of the experiences and uh, that I've had. Uh, but yeah, criminal defense is my passion, and it's what I've committed uh, my life to, even since one L of law school. Yeah, and so you've been you've been out on your own now for it's been over three years, hasn't it? Yeah, I think we're coming up on five. Really? Wow. I think that's so. Wild. That's wild. Th- Congrats. Yeah. Congrats. Hey, thanks dude. a lot. Like, that's a big deal. Like now that I have my own law firm, I can really appreciate the um, the amount of work and the amount of uh, time and effort that goes into making that sort of thing a success. So, I mean, like hats off to you, man. Like five years is not, that's a big deal. Appreciate it. Yeah, we, we passed out, yeah, we rounded off four. Yeah, I'm in my fifth year. That's cool. Well, okay, so, um, all right. So what is the difference between being in the public defender's office and being in private practice? Well, I'll say that being at the public defender's office is like my favorite job that I've ever had. Uh, you know, I say that even now, being in private practice where I get to make my own rules and stuff, I, I just loved that work. I frankly wish I could have stayed longer than I did. Uh, you know, so so I guess to answer your question, you get to focus on just lawyering, you know, just the, the true nuts and bolts of being in the courtroom and you know honing your skills and 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 really not worried about where the next case is going to come from or how you're going to pay the bills or 
you know, what kind of marketing you should be involved in and all that goes into running a business. Uh, that is most, many business owners have to deal with whether they're lawyers or not. You get to just be a lawyer. And the other thing that I loved about it was I, I frankly loved the idea of representing indigent clients that couldn't afford representation. And I guess I thought that it was really a unique responsibility and a privilege to, to have that opportunity because they didn't choose you. They're already worried that they're gonna get somebody that doesn't care about their case. There's yeah. a lot of negative stigmas, right, about what a public defender is. And so I don't know, I just sort of loved that aspect of it too. Like get, get the best that I possibly could do for these people that may not be expecting someone to even care. So I thought there was a unique responsibility that way. And, and that's a, it's, it's a little different in that regard. One of the stranger stigmas that I ran into as a public defender, I think you're going to agree with this, was that we're not even attorneys. Like a lot of our clients didn't even <laughs> think that we were attorneys. Like that happened on like a weekly basis. It, I mean, no like, doubt. It, it got it got so old that like it, like I had like stock responses to it. Like, and I went through like phases. I think the first phase was shock, and then the second phase was anger, and then the third phase was acceptance. I was just like, you know what? It just it is what it is. So. I'm just going to get in there. I'm going to do the best job that I can. And I'm going to, I'm going to provide the best representation that I can possibly provide. And, you know, hopefully I'll change some minds as we go along. And, and that just, it, it is what it is. But I think that was the, the strangest, um, the strangest stigma that I ran into. I remember one specific one was um, I got done with the case and I, did, I got a really good outcome for this lady. And she looked at me and she goes, you're going to make a great lawyer one day. And I was just like, I already am. Like, what are you talking about? Like, oh you my know goodness. I just worked on your case? Like, I don't even remember what it was. It was like a, like a Dewillis or something like that. And, uh, but yeah, I got her a really good outcome, you know? And like, that was her response. Like she was trying to, she was paying me a compliment, but she had she just had no idea. How much that hurts. Yeah. It, it, pub, public pretender was a, was a favorite one uh, back in, yep. back in Brevard. Yeah. Uh, I need to get a real lawyer was another one. Uh, you know, so yeah, I think that you're right. I think it ranged from people thinking you're not a lawyer to even if you are, you're not a real one, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, and, and then just all the stigma that goes, I, Chris, I used to think, I remember coming out of law school and thinking, knowing I wanted to do criminal defense work and knowing I had a real passion for it, but also second guessing myself on, yeah, but is this going to be bad for my career? Yep. Should I go to the state attorney's office? Yep. Because even I, as a young lawyer or a, a soon to be, you know, graduating uh, law student, had that stigma too. Like, oh, well, if you go to the state attorney's office, that's somehow prestigious. Yep. But if you go be a public defender, that's somehow not. And, yeah, and really I, like slumming it. Yeah, and I, I, I've. I realized just how wrong I was. Yep. I'm not just saying that because I was a PD. I'm saying that because, first of all, it's not exactly easy to get a job as a PD. Everyone wants these jobs. Yep. So if you're at either place, to me, I think it's just as respected. I just don't know why even I thought that um, well, coming out of... The way that, I think that it's the way that the media is set up and just the way that you're kind of brought up. I, I know that times are different now in 2020. I think it's shifted. I think now it's the maybe just the polar opposite, and it's that the people who go out and become state attorneys or assistant state attorneys are looked on or, or are looked down upon, whereas the public defenders are kind of looked at as the you know the champions of the people. Whereas I think when we were coming up in like the '90s and early 2000s, and then you know obviously I think we were the public defenders probably like circa 2014. You know, like there wasn't that didn't exist. It was kind of the opposite, and the, the stigma was that 
you know, you're representing guilty people. How can you? How could you? How could you represent guilty people? Police officers never make bad arrests. No one is ever put in jail that isn't supposed to be in jail. No one is ever wrongfully convicted. So how on earth could you, you know, get in there and represent somebody who has done, you know, harm to another or harm to society? And I think that, obviously, you know, as we've seen and as as times have changed, you know, it's become more more i guess awareness has come out that like obviously and this is a different topic but i mean i think it's because of body cams i really do think that body cams has really just blown the whole the doors off this whole thing um and that is that police officers make mistakes you know yeah there are guys out there and i I really don't want to make this like super political but you know obviously there's bad police officers out there but a lot of them just make mistakes you know we we they work a job just like we do, and they have bad days and they have good days. But the problem is, is that those bad days result in people going to jail. And it, then it's like the criminal defense attorney's job to come behind and clean up and make sure that justice is actually served. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, you touched on a lot of things there. But yes, obviously, public sentiment has changed because I think we're more willing to acknowledge shortcomings and shortfalls that that do exist. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like. I hear all these arguments, well, there's there's bad apples in every profession or, um, you know, there's, it, just because there's one bad cop doesn't mean they're all bad. Of course not. Of course not. This whole idea that uh, we need to defund the, all the police. Look, I'm wearing a Black Lives Matter bracelet on my hand right now. I didn't even mean for this to come up, but I've been wearing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a huge believer in this political movement and in the awareness that's being spread across the country and you know what a lot of times even like you say even good cops make mistakes and sometimes good cops don't and they do the right thing but then again this guy's now facing whatever charge he's facing he or she and the question is do we really need we also have these like archaic sentencing schemes so so yeah they committed the crime the cop's not bad no one's bad it's like okay like that now the guy the, the cops were great in this case. More more cases than not actually have regular or good cops that like do their job. Like just saying, I have a lot of cases yep. and it's rare that I have like some guy that I'm like looking sideways at saying, man, you fabricated this or manipulated it. Not to say that I don't have those and I do and it sucks because right. it definitely gives a bad stigma to the whole profession. But I would say that that is the outlier, but it happens more often than, than I'd want to see. But even still, like, do we need to be throwing, like, in a, in a regular case, an arrest was made, someone committed some crime, do we need to be sentencing this guy to three or four years in prison? Like, what goal does that accomplish exactly? And is that is that punishment commensurate with a crime, especially if no one is injured, if it's not a violent crime or anything like that? Like, what are we doing? whole other reason that I love doing work, because you get to look at the whole human and you're their, you're the, really their only mouthpiece, you know, maybe something that could serve the interests of society uh, through a prison sentence, because that's just how we're programmed in our mind that that's what must happen. It, maybe society would be much better served if the person was on probation or in some sort of rehabilitative program or something where their life isn't totally ruined for the ever, which is going to lead them to necessarily commit more crimes. I mean, there's just a thousand ways to look at this. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that a lot of people who don't work in this industry, they don't realize, is that a lot of what criminal defense attorneys do is it's not necessarily get the person off because the person that you're representing a lot of times has committed a crime, but it may not necessarily be the crime that they're being charged of. 
or maybe they are dead to rights guilty of that crime but like you say the sentence is just all out of whack with like who the person is and what was actually done you know not all like not all DUIs are created equal right like you could have a DUI where you get into an accident and no one's hurt or you can have a DUI where you do get into an accident and someone does get hurt or someone gets killed or maybe you're just driving down the road at like 2 a.m. in the morning and the cop pulls you over and smells alcohol, conducts a field sobriety exercise, and you get arrested. You know, each one of those punishments, even if they've got you dead to rights, should be different. I mean, you could take it to the extreme and say not all killings are created equal. The act of killing somebody, right, which I'm never a fan of. I'm not even a big fan of guns in a majority of my practices related to self-defense matters and things like that. It's really what I what I focus on and what I love to do. But having done this for a while and being a concealed weapons permit holder, I'll, I don't carry a weapon. I think it's a really bad idea in most cases. Uh, but, but to my point, like the act of killing somebody uh, in one case could be murder, in another case could be totally legally justified and you're getting a medal, you know? So it's like, okay, just because someone's dead and it was at your hands, circumstances matter a lot. And if you take a bird's eye view from that and say, what, what are you saying? It's like, okay, yeah, uh, I killed someone. Now what? Is that murder? Is that some other kind of murder? Is it not even murder at all? Was I justified? Am I the right guy? Well, if you're just looking at like, you did it and someone's dead, and that's sort of where the inquiry ends, obviously we've got a problem, which is why we have all of these distinctions in every state's law, basically, but especially Florida, because that's what I'm familiar with, um, on when it's okay to kill somebody or when it's not, or when it's sort of okay. You know, it's like, what? Someone's still dead. And you take that and you apply it to this huge rainbow of other crimes and other circumstances that exist uh, where someone's getting arrested. And it's like, yeah, we should probably start looking at the circumstances surrounding what happened here. Uh, to make sure that we're doing the right thing and it's just not a one-size-fits-all situation. Which is another reason I think most judges that you talk to would say they hate minimum mandatory sentences because it takes all discretion out of their hands, you know? Yeah, so um, I was talking to uh, a non-lawyer about that, I don't know, maybe like two or three months ago. And I was kind of making the argument that the minimum mandatories, and this is coming from a guy who doesn't, I've never done felony stuff before, so I don't know all the ins and outs of, of minimum mandatory like I'm, I'm sure that you do. So why don't you, why don't you explain, for anybody who's listening to this that doesn't know what minimum mandatories are, wh why don't you explain what they are? So just let's, we'll take a basic one because there's lots of different crimes that require a minimum mandatory. I think the two that come to mind are if you commit a felony with a firearm, usually that triggers a certain minimum mandatory, whereas if you committed the same felony without a firearm, there wouldn't be. Uh, and what a minimum mandatory is, is, hey, if you're convicted of the crime that you're charged with, which is a whole other issue, just because you're arrested for something and even charged with a particular crime doesn't mean that's what you're ultimately going to be convicted of or you ultimately enter a plea to. But in certain circumstances, if you enter a plea or you're convicted of particular crimes, that there's in sentencing an absolute minimum, like the floor, the least the judge can sentence you to is a certain amount of time. And sometimes those minimum mandatories that are set by, you know, the legislature in Tallahassee who aren't judges 
that aren't really dealing with the criminal justice system, but they might happen to find themselves on the criminal justice steering committee for whatever reason, because there was an opening or whatever, are like making these calls about what what is a reasonable minimum mandatory. And what has happened is we end up having like pretty, pretty benign crimes, like even like victimless stuff. Like take the gun out of it for a second, because I know that might be freaking people out. But even just like regular drug stuff that doesn't, you know, it, it's a relatively small amount of some, you know, controlled substance. A lot of those have minimum mandatories too. Meanwhile, you know, it's not like anyone was hurt. It's, you know, some guy in possession of some pills or whatever. And all of a sudden this guy's in prison for 10 years. And it's like, wait, what? And it's, oh yeah, it's the minimum mandatory. And meanwhile, the judge at sentencing is saying, I'm sorry, kid. Like, I wish I could give you something that made sense, maybe some rehab or whatever, but I must sentence you to 10 years in prison. Why? Because Tallahassee said so. It's a minimum mandate. I can't get out of it. required to follow the law. He has to follow the law, and the law says minimum mandatory of 10 years. Sorry. You got it. And, so you know, sometimes it makes perfect sense, but in those cases, people sometimes aren't getting the minimum mandatory. They're getting more. Because just because there's a minimum mandatory doesn't mean that that's the ceiling. It's actually the floor. It's in the cases where the person should be sentenced to something less or some alternative sentencing scheme, but the judge's hands are tied because the law is the floor is ridiculously high. Right. And that's the problem. And that's the problem. This is why I'm against minimum mandatories is because my understanding is that minimum mandatories came about in the 90s when they were doing like the war on drugs and also like the war on crime. And they were really trying to be trying to have like crackdowns on, on just criminal acts in general in the state of Florida. And I think it was really more like a nationwide movement too, if I remember right. But what really ends up happening is, is that, you know, like until I was honestly, until I was a criminal defense attorney, uh, I was always like, yeah, of course, minimum mandatory you know, like it'll discourage people from committing crimes. But what ends up happening is exactly what you just said. It hamstrings not just the defense attorney or the judge, but also the state attorney. Cause a lot of times, and I haven't had any experience with this because you know, again, I, you know, never ran up against min or mandatory minimums, but I've done enough criminal defense negotiating to understand that you can turn the state attorney around to your line of thinking and get them to go down that road with you regarding like how you're going to sentence and how you're going to plea out this case. But when you've got something like a mandatory minimum out there, you're, 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 you're up a creek with no paddle. Like, I think that this isn't as, as good of an example, but going back to the DUI stuff, because I know that there's mandatory minimums with DUIs. If you get a DUI, first-time offense comes with a laundry list of penalties that you have to fulfill in order to comply with the law. But not every single, like I said, not every single DUI is created equal. And I think that there were times when, I mean, I could have probably convinced the uh, state attorney to go light on different sentencing uh, aspects of that plea or, or of those mandatory minimums if it wasn't for that law. I think that's right. I think and it, DUIs are interesting because it's one of the only misdemeanors, if not the only misdemeanor, that mandatory has minimum. mandatory minimums. Yep. Yeah. And it's not just one. It's like you say, it's like a mandatory license suspension. It's mandatory probation, blah, 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 blah. And if it's your second one, there's a whole new list of mandatory minimums. So I, good point. And I think one of the ways around it is if you really do have a prosecutor who's saying, wait, this is just the wrong way to go. This isn't serving the interest of justice. This isn't serving any real rehabilitative sanction for the defendant. And it's, you know, a little uh, too aggressive on the punitive sanction part is to get out from under that charge. 
So this is a little bit harder to do. Right. Uh, but basically, if you can amend the charge to something that doesn't trigger a mend- uh, minimum mandatory, then that is one avenue. But again, you really have to do your work up front and explain to a, a prosecutor. By the way, I I, uh, I like most prosecutors that I've dealt with too. It's another thing that I'd say after doing this for a while. Like, they're mostly good as well. I, I A lot of prosecutors that I've come across genuinely want to do the right thing yeah. and got into this for the right reasons. And so prosecutors that can see the whole case and see the actual defendant for who he is and the real circumstances here. And wait, what, what makes sense? Those are the good ones. The ones that are, I think, following their ethical duties. Because again, prosecutors have their own set of Florida bar rules and ethics rules that they must follow, that their job is not to win, it's to seek justice. It literally says that. Unlike every other attorney, every other type of attorney, you're supposed to zealously advocate for your client. Not saying prosecutors aren't supposed to zealously advocate for the state of Florida, they are. But everybody else is like, win, 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 win. Whereas prosecutors are charged with the responsibility of making sure that that isn't their mindset. They've got to do the best they can, and I get it. But the mindset should be seeking justice, not only winning. And to wrap my point here, if you get a prosecutor that can see the whole thing, they might say, hey, there's this other charge that fits what we're talking about, but doesn't trigger a minimum mandatory. But for so long, we weren't thinking like this. And that's why we've got the prison population problems that we do right now on both the state and federal levels. Especially for nonviolent crimes, too. Like, I think that's the one that, like, most, at least attorneys, if not, you know, non-attorneys, I think that's the one that a lot of people are getting behind right now because you've got people that are going to jail for, like, 10, 15, 20 years on nonviolent offenses. And while, uh, you know, I think most of those are drug-related, so it would be, like, selling drugs or possessing drugs. I think that selling drugs, obviously, I think could, could come with some higher penalties, but... Again, it hamstrings the officers of the court, right? The attorneys and the judge who are tasked with finding justice. And, you know, you said it so well when you said that the state attorneys have that uh, duty in order to find justice, not just just zealously advocate for the client, which I guess technically would be the state of uh, would be the state of Florida or, who, you know, whatever, whatever enforcement uh, body that they work for. Um, you know, they're supposed to find justice as well. And when you've got these mandatory minimums, it again, it hamstrings everybody from being able to try to figure out what's fair. But the interesting thing is, is that this non-attorney that I was talking to a few months ago was saying, well, what about corrupt attorneys? What about corrupt judges? And while I think that that's a solid point, I think that that might be one of the reasons for, for keeping them out there, I guess. I mean, I've been doing this job long enough to know that like, while again, it's like there's bad cops, right? There's bad attorneys, there's bad judges. We read about them in the paper like every week or every month or however long that it happens. But like, it's like the one or the two. And it's like nationwide. It's not like I'm reading about a corrupt attorney in the state of Florida like every other day. You know what I mean? I think most of the people that I've met in my career, and this goes for, this goes for all avenues of, uh, of the law, is that most people are trying to do the right thing. Most people are trying to operate ethically. They're not just trying to, like you said, zealously advocate for their client. I mean, we're all out there trying to do that, but they're they're doing it in an ethical way. Yeah, I think for the most part, that's right. I, I, I And look, I'm not saying I agree with everyone. I mean, I might certainly have a philosophical disagreement with opposing counsel or a judge or a prosecutor or whatever. But that doesn't mean just because I think that they're an idiot in in my mind, you know what I'm saying, or that they got this wrong, that they are actually 
you know, malintent, you know, with it, right? It's what they maybe I would like to believe that it's what they believe is really, you know, them doing the best that they can and in the right position. I will tell you that on more than a handful of occasions, though, I have seen what I consider to be uh people acting not in the best interests of their client or people acting not in the best interests of justice. And I think it, it like objectively uh, that can be proven. And, and unfortunately um, you're right. I, I think it's the minority, but even of my own practice, I've seen it. Yeah. And it's, I, I would say that I, you know, try to draw the distinction between this person is doing the best they can. And I disagree with them. And wait a second, this person is crossing all kinds of ethical lines that no one as a, as a licensed attorney in our state is allowed to cross. And that that's where I think things um, get dicey. When all of a sudden people start acting quote unquote unethically. Like that's not just kind of like a, a, a like, oh, they're bad. No, like against the rules of professionalism that we are required to uphold. And I think when political influence comes in, especially with judges seeking reelection in some circumstances, uh-huh. or, you know, state attorneys that are trying to impress their boss and, Maybe they're under some pressure to do something that they otherwise wouldn't have done if they didn't have that. Yeah, things can get a little, a little, unfortunately, a little dicey. And with police, I just, right before I started this podcast, I've got a guy who called me from jail who was in for all kinds of terrible, uh, you know, accusations, you know, aggravated battery on a law enforcement officer and all kinds of things, things that, by the way, could trigger minimum mandatories, I should point out. And, uh, it turns out he he was innocent of those charges. We've got the body cams and everything to show that the police, and this is so weird, um, violated their own uh, rules of professional conduct and their own um, you know internal standards. And in one case, in this guy's case, a uh, law enforcement officer was kneeling on my guy's neck and he was screaming, I can't breathe. And it was so similar to the George Floyd case. And yet this occurred before the George Floyd case. So it was like another one of these things. And this was in Orlando. This was like right here in Orlando Police Department doing this. And, you know, it turns out that he wasn't guilty of all these aggravated felonies. And yeah, he entered a plea today. He wasn't my client. He entered a plea today uh, on the criminal matter. He sought sought me out for other reasons like these um, to evaluate this part of the case. Uh, But, you know, he entered a plea today to some misdemeanor. That had nothing to do with it. like all this use of force stuff and you know battery on a law enforcement officer. But led out to like whatever it was, like some sort of um, being out too late past his curfew, <laughs> and yet it led to this crazy, um, you know, violent altercation where police just beat the crap out of this guy and then blamed him for it. So it happens, but I think for the most part. Uh, I think we just need to be vigilant. I, you know, I'm not I'm not going to stand here and say, even though I've seen it maybe more than most because of my profession, I'm not going to stand here and say police are bad or that we need to defund police departments. That's that's I don't think that's the way to go. I'm so thankful the police are there. They've helped me in my personal life many a time. And uh, yeah, I just think we need better training and more awareness. Yeah, better training would be good. No doubt about that. I'm trying to think. Um so um, going back to what you were saying about uh, state attorneys and being held to a higher standard, um, I think that one of the more interesting things in our law that, that kind of, I guess, rounds that, that concept out is the concept of Brady violations. 
And uh, for anybody who's not aware of what a Brady violation, can you explain it? Yeah, this applies to across the board. It's actually a federal uh, rule that was from, I want to say it was Brady v. Maryland, and that ultimately went to the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken, is where this started. But basically, prosecutors are under an ethical obligation to turn over to the defense any exculpatory evidence. So any evidence that tends to prove the uh, innocence or non-guilt of a defendant and there's actually been case law that's interpreted this to mean even if that goes down to impeachment of state witnesses and things like that. So it might be, you know, name your charge. It might be like, okay, guy robs a bank. No one robs banks, by the way, but like, let's just use that because it's kind of fun. <laughs> guy robs a bank and, um, okay, uh, there's some video surveillance or whatever. And then all of a sudden, one of the witnesses to the bank robbery has some felonies and some problems with their candor and stuff that would need to be disclosed to potentially explore that witness's credibility. It may not be the case that that witness is the smoking gun to say that he, you know, uh, did or didn't rob the bank or that, that, but for this witness, the guy did or didn't do that. But if it's a witness that the state's relying on, uh, and they've got credibility issues, even that is a Brady violation if the state's aware of it and doesn't turn it over. It comes up a lot. I remember in the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman case, this is a great example, that there was, uh, and I'm not going to go into the content of, of what it uh, revealed, but that basically we had Trayvon's cell phone, right? And in that, uh, the, the state had provided us only parts of the full download of the phone and pretended like it was the full thing. This is about as bad as it gets. Um, and we got this download and it was the state, you know, that had the evidence and they're under the obligation to provide everything that they might use at trial. And so that's pretty normal. Brady goes beyond that and says, if it's exculpatory, it's you have an obligation to go out and find it and provide it to the defense and reasonable minds might differ. But I think that Anyone who uh, disagrees with me on that should look at the case law. Um, but in any event, like they gave it to us and they said, here it is. And we, for whatever reason, didn't believe them. Um, there had been a lot of things leading up to why we were skeptical of, of the way that case was being handled by the state. And they, uh, we asked for the phone. So we got the phone, gave it to our own expert who revealed that there was a bunch of stuff on that phone that was exculpatory uh, to the defendant and that the state intentionally hit it and provided us a doctored version of the uh, contents of the phone. Now, I don't care what you think about that case, but I think everyone can agree that is not okay to pass it. You're the, you're the representative of the state of Florida. You have an affirmative obligation under not only the ethical rules, but also Brady uh, to Make sure the defense is aware of anything that could tend to be exculpatory. And then you intentionally doctor a document and say this is the full thing. And but for us being able to get an expert to do it ourselves, we never would have known. So that's not okay. Oh, that happened, a, a, yeah, and that happened a bunch of times, by the way. Um, in that particular case, as to the point where there was a whistleblower at the state attorney's office that was like, this is wrong. And uh, that guy ended up getting fired. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Was he an attorney? 
No, it was the it was the poor guy who did the download. It was like their IT guy. Oh and he's God. like, this is not okay what we're doing. And they're like, yeah, well, there's the door. And then he ended up becoming <laughs> he ended up becoming a witness oh, at wow. one of the he- hearings on this. He, yes. Was it, it like, was a Brady, like a Brady hearing? We, um, you know, I don't remember exactly when it came up. I think it was during one of these previous hearings where we were having like all these discovery issues, and um, you know, and there was for a, people who a are bunch of these. That aren't aware, you worked on the Trayvon uh, Martin George Zimmerman case, right? That's right. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. I was in law school at the time of that case. Another reason that I um, am unabashed about being uh, a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. That case started, which is interesting because I was on the other side. We were on the defense in that case, so we ended up winning. Um, I wasn't an attorney at the time, but I was uh, involved with it from start to finish once uh, I started working with the defense team on that. And there was only like six of us in the beginning, and it it grew to like no more than 10 people on that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm thankful for the experience because it helped me become you know, it really was like 10 years of legal experience in like one case because there was so much going on with it and all the intense media scrutiny and stuff like that. But the Black Lives Matter... I'd like to talk to you about a little bit later, but yeah, continue. Oh, sure. But the Black Lives Matter movement was born from that case. It was actually a tweet that someone, when uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted that night, and there was obviously a lot of anger and frustration and, and just that resonated throughout the country over that. Um, and, and I can understand why, even though I was on the defense side of it, uh, to the best of my ability, I'll never understand what it means to be a person, um, in this country who has been oppressed, uh, for centuries and I looking sideways, um, you know, worried that people I'm, I'm at any time, uh, going to be a suspect or that the police I can't trust. I, I, I can't understand that. And I think getting to a place of recognizing, you know, where we're all coming from and, and recognizing our own realities of the way that we perceive the world is really important rather than saying, oh, I totally get where you're coming from. I'm willing to say I don't um, understand that. And that's my starting point. So with that said, I at least can appreciate why people are frustrated and were back then. Um, because I think that it's not without merit. But in any event, like, it was a tweet that night, and someone just tweeted out that had a decent following, you know, Black Lives Matter. And that thing caught fire, like, within the next week. It was from our case. And, um, you know, here I am. I'm trying to be an ally and supporter of that all these years later because I, I, I've i seen it in my own practice and in my own life over and over again uh, that there is a, a difference, I think, whether people want to admit it or not, implicit bias that occurs in this country, um, even accidentally, even with good cops, uh, that just is there in, in certain circumstances. So, and it's just unfortunate. So, but going back to the, uh, going back to the Brady violations with the state in that particular case, what, what ended up happening in those uh, hearings? How did the judge uh, look at those violations and what were the outcomes to that? We had motions for sanctions, I think, pending that the judge wanted to hear after the case. So she wasn't willing. We actually, I remember at one point, the main attorney on that case, Mark O'Mara, who was my boss, called the prosecutor to the stand. At one. <laughs> He's like, you know, we wanted to take some testimony or something like that. And he would know better than me. I'm just remembering back 
um, and not understanding the procedure of all this, like I, I would probably better understand now. Uh-huh. But he actually called the pro- the main prosecutor to the stand because he wanted to testify about what directives he took with this discovery, and the judge shut it down basically and was like, "We're not going to do this," and really wanted to keep that out of the courtroom and reserved on all those issues until after the outcome of the trial. Uh, which is probably a smart thing to do if you're a judge in a case that was the biggest case in the world at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, probably try to keep it, keep the fray out of it as much as possible. So, so wait. And then, and then we ended up winning. So then it, we, right. we kind of ended up letting a lot of this go. So it becomes a moot issue at that point because you ended up winning anyway. So despite your inability to get all the evidence, you still prevailed. I get we that. still got what we, oh, though, the judge was like, we got what we needed. Um, but when it came to moving for sanctions, oh, I got you. All right. You know, it's it it, it 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 sort of became like a is this the axe we want to keep grinding after yeah. we want? But didn't you... even if we could, is that the right thing to do? But wouldn't you ask? I mean, because I know that one what? of the remedies I know that one of the remedies for a Brady violation is a dismissal of the case. So I imagine that you guys asked for that. Mike, can you hear me? I don't remember if they did. Oh. I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can hear you. You kind of okay. dropped out there you know, for a minute, so. Oh, weird. Yeah, I don't remember if they asked for dismissal of the case. I, I, you know, I think if we would have lost, then perhaps that would have been more on the table. Plus, there was, you know. It, but at the end of the day, we got the discovery we needed to get, but it was like pulling teeth. Mm-hmm. And it was not done ethically by the state. And ultimately, the special prosecutor that was appointed by the governor in that case was fired by the state of Florida because she wasn't reelected because she was terrible. Yeah. And um, I think I think Jacksonville recognized that. By the way, they brought a special prosecutor from Jacksonville to do that case. And that's how they did it because our um, – <laughs> well, anyway, that's what happened. Because basically the actual assigned state attorney's office didn't want to prosecute because they thought – that under the facts of this case, he was the defendant was legally justified in uh, the use of force. And once the facts came out of trial, of course, that's what the jury ended up finding too. But because it was such a political thing, the governor said no. Someone needs to prosecute it, so he got a really unethical prosecutor to do it, who then played all kinds of tricks throughout the case, and then ultimately was uh, kicked out of office. From yeah. so. And That's what I, happened there. As I recall, the person that got elected in her place um, actually set up a task force whose sole purpose was to go back through all of the convictions to determine if the convictions were legitimate or not, which I thought was yeah. incredible. I'd never heard of a state attorney doing something like that, basically going back through and checking to see if the state attorney's office, which obviously she had not been the, the official state attorney, you know, not, you know, a year before that, it had been this other prosecutor that you're talking about. And she's basically saying, I don't trust what's going on here, what's been going on here. I just want to, I'm going to send people in there to look at, to have another look at all this stuff to make sure that everything was done on the up and up. Yeah, it was called the, I want to say it was called the Conviction Integrity Unit. And it was an incredible initiative by a state. See, here's a great example. Let's call a spade a spade that you know, the former prosecutor was bad news bears, was very unethical, and that ultimately came to light. 
And this new one was very good and trying to do things right and, you know, established a conviction integrity unit and where they were reviewing all kinds of cases. This had really nothing to do with Zimmerman. It's just, you know, this the way this was the main practice. L- let me put it this way. Duval County in Florida had the same more people on death row. Just follow me on this. Then every other county in Florida combined. It's pretty wild. Uh, yeah. So if there's 67 counties in Florida, I know Duval's a big county, but it ain't bigger than like Miami-Dade or, you know. Miami-Dade, yeah, like Dade and Broward County. Yeah, so like whatever. Um, yeah, so they so 67 counties, one county had as many, if not a little bit of more, people on death row than the other 66 back in 2013. So a lot of these death row folks were hey, under. All the criminals are just in Duval, man. Maybe they are. <laughs> and, I, and you know what? I actually did all this research back then because we were trying to figure all this out, especially once we were personally dealing with what we considered to be unethical practices, literally against the rules uh-huh. of practicing law. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a guess as to, uh, you know, whether the people on death row are generally black or white coming out of Duval County. So Ooh. do I only get one? You get one guess. <laughs> no, it was like it was like eighty to twenty. Wow. It was it was ridiculous. And then, well, there's other and no, the answer is no. There's not more African American folks in Duval County than white people. Um, it wasn't commensurate with the population. We could have all these arguments about why, but the point is, it's disgusting. It's just it's it was ridiculous. And I'm glad that she was voted out. I can't have I don't have enough negative things to say about this particular state attorney. It was just so bad. I only knew about her because of that the, that big case, but we're way past that. I mean, that was a long time ago. It's just, even Jacksonville, the, they just voted her out. Bye. And probably for the better. I mean, it seems like the new, I, I don't know if it's still the same state attorney as it was back then. It probably is, but it seems like things have been on the up and up in Duval since then. It was Melissa Nelson was the new attorney. Um, let's see. I want to say. Yeah, because we were talking about Angela Corey for, for anyone who's uh, paying attention. That was the, the one that was the special prosecutor who was voted out. Yeah. I um, then I believe she was replaced by M- Melissa Nelson, right? I don't and know. Those names sound familiar, though. No, it is. And yeah, she's still there. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. so there you go. I mean, but I, I know that I've read a few articles. Um, like the Florida Bar's newsletter and, uh, you know, just, you, you know, how attorneys do, we pass stuff around each other. Um, it seems like she was doing a lot of good things up there for a while. So I hope, I hope that continues. I hope it's been getting better. Have you ever been to the courthouse up there in Duval? No, but I've had cases up there. I've had post-conviction cases during the Angela Corey period Dude, it's up a in Duval. crazy courthouse, man. I think it's bigger than the one in West Palm. Really? Because I yeah. go there all the time. It's crazy, dude. It, it's like uh, one of the attorneys that I, I had a case up there, um, I don't know, like a year ago or so. And uh, one of the attorneys or the attorney that I was practicing against opposing counsel, like he called it the Taj Mahal. And it's not a bad it's not a bad descriptor of it. It's like this just very large, very ornate, you know, looks like it's like granite lined on the inside marble. It, it, and it's just it's absolutely humongous. Sounds beautiful. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool courthouse. No doubt about it. I like courthouses. I, you know, it's fun. It's it's fun, especially if you get to like hop around uh, 
you know, different places in the state. You go from something like what you're talking about or like Palm Beach County, even Orange County's courthouse, I think is absolutely beautiful. It's a good one. I like it too. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Except for those elevators are always a problem. If any, if anyone listening knows what I'm talking about, <laughs> the elevators are, you got to like press your floor button and then wait for like your assigned elevator yep. and it's supposed to be more efficient, but who the heck knows? Uh, but you go to like DeSoto County, right? And all of a sudden, you think you're in the Andy Griffith show. It's like this, uh, you know, kind of two-story, real quaint, kind of charming, tiny courthouse with like four courtrooms. Yeah, and there you go. And it's like all wooden and whatever. And it's it's it, it's nice in its own way, but it's so un- unassuming compared to like, you know, these other scary places. Yeah, I think it's kind of how the Indian River Courthouse is. I don't know if you've ever been there. But it's I have. Small I have. It not, is. Not, not, it's, it's sleepy. I think it's probably the best way to describe it. It's sleepy. sleepy. It's a sleepy little courthouse. Definitely stuff goes on there. But most of the time when I roll in there, it's like just me. And there's like no one else there. You know, you and Barney Fife. Yeah, you got it right. And usually like. You know, it's the deputies that are just, like, all hanging out down there at the bottom. So, like, yeah, Barney Fife is is, is there and just hanging out. But I'm the same we, way, man. I like I yeah. like going around and seeing, like, the different courthouses. It's, it's neat how they all have their own their own characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Levy County is kind of fun. Levy is west of Gainesville. Okay. And in the same judicial circuit, I want to say, is Alachua. And, uh, you know, that's another. It's, like, just kind of... I mean, you go to these rural parts of the state, and then all of a sudden there's a courthouse because there has to be, and it's it's when you're used to being in, you know, Palm Beach or Orange County or whatever, and then you walk into like you know, Indian River or DeSoto or Levy, it's like whoa, and it, it's almost like you want to put on your cowboy boots and fit in a little bit because, dude, I, I I've actually felt like where was it? Maybe it was Indian River. Um, is that where, is that where Vero is? Yeah, it's Vero. That's Vero. Where's Vero Beach? Yeah, that's that's the one I wanted to put my yeah. I, it, they're in Desoto, especially. I wanted to put my cowboy boots on and just kind of be like, hey guys, like uh, I'm not from Orlando, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd probably be totally cool with it. I saw a guy wear cowboy boots into the federal courthouse there in Orlando, actually. But we weren't well, there. For, we that were, would uh, we weren't. That's we were, kind of scary. We were yeah. Well. He is a, a gentleman that I know from law school, and he has um, – he's a, a – what's the word? A brave individual, I think is probably a nice way of putting it. And uh, Was that his first time in that building? Because if you've ever been in the Middle District of Florida's federal courthouse in Orlando, it's not a place you want to be wearing cowboy boots into. It, it's not a – yeah, it, it's not for the faint of heart. Let's just put it that way. And um, – but anyway, yeah, yeah, no, like full on, like, you know, like the nice, like, you know, you, I know you know your cowboy boots. So it, it, it's like the nice style of cowboy boot, you know, but like it wasn't, they weren't too flashy or anything like that. But yeah, he definitely did it. And it was not for court appearance, but it was for our swearing in ceremony. So oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like we were like standing up there and like ready to deliver like a motion for summary judgment or anything like that. It oh, was, that doesn't count. Yeah, okay, like I'll us. allow it. It was just, <laughs> it was just in the. Uh, we were just sitting in the jury box, like you know. It was actually pretty cool. Like I don't know if you've, if you've done that yet, but um, it was actually kind of a cool little. I um, have a little little event where like I, I forget the name of the magistrate who came in and like swore us in, but he actually like, it, it wasn't like we just like he just walked in and we had already signed our paperwork and he was just like, all right, everybody raise your right hands. Here's the oath, blah blah blah. All right, you know, see you guys later. It was like he took time to like, 
talk to us and he actually uh, had us all go around and, like introduce ourselves and say like what kind of practice that we were doing and what kind of practice that we wanted to do in the middle district and you know he was like very like warm and inviting and like really encouraged us like you know uh, genuinely encouraged us to like be involved and you know if there were any issues to like you know contact them and it was it was a really it was actually a, a, a much uh, more uh, standout experience than I was expecting when I initially showed up because like you know I'm, like I'm not trying to sound like overly important but like I was very busy especially at that time and like having to like drive over to Orlando to get sworn in for like I had a case in the middle district which is why I was doing it but like at that time I was like man I don't want to do this I don't want to drive like 45 minutes just to get sworn in and like be there for like an hour and a half and then drive 45 minutes back like that blows half a day you know and I have like things that I need to get done but like right looking back on it now I'm really glad that I did it because it was really cool like I'm not gonna have to do that like I need to get um, I need to get barred in the southern district I haven't done that yet um, I can literally just mail in at this point because I've been sworn in up in the middle district but uh, I'm glad that I did the middle district swearing and I thought it was a really cool experience and anybody that might be listening to this that might be like a young attorney that is thinking about getting um, sworn into the middle district I would highly encourage you to to actually go and do it because it is a really cool experience yeah, I, I agree. I did do it too, Chris. Um, I had the same experience, and it's a it, it's a it's a cool courthouse, you know. And that's another place you want to say you're the only person in there, but it's a totally different feel. Yeah. Like you walk into like one of these co- country courthouses, and you're like, I'm the only one here because it's the only case today. The middle district, it's like, why is no one else here in this gigantic cathedral of a scary federal building that's yep. also pretty awesome yep and then and then you like walk into like getting sworn in which is also super intimidating the first time you walk into one of these courtrooms by the way if you're only used to doing state court go to a federal courthouse and <laughs> that's that's where the adults hang out you know it's like whoa uh but yeah i had a very very similar experience and by the way every time i call the middle district for anything their clerks are like super on top of it yep. they like everybody knows what's going on yep. everything about federal court is is like cooler it you is know? it is and it's a lot more um i think that like the it's it's weightier for some reason I, I it's don't know weightier why. even though like the law a lot of times because like you know i don't i don't practice federal law generally like i think we had um what was the case i think it was just a car accident case but somehow we had we were trying to assert subject matter jurisdiction over the federal i forget why but um but it's the same thing like even if you get like a car accident case like a personal injury motor vehicle accident case in the federal courthouse generally they're going to be using the exact same laws that we would be using at the state level but it's just the fact that it's the federal government you know it's the this is not an attorney or this is not a judge that was elected by the people this is a judge that was appointed by by a by a president and that person has is is there for life so and and they don't mess around like they don't pick like the you know these guys are like the cream of the crop intellectually and and it, and it shows and it feels that way uh yeah it, it it just it's a totally different thing by the way if you're going to do the southern district they make you take a little test oh i heard about that i thought they waived it though i thought that wasn't a thing anymore oh i don't know when i did it i had to do like the class and you've got to like get the right answers and stuff before it's like doing driving school <laughs> <laughs> Is it, it like, is. Is it intense at all? Like, do you have to? Like, no, it's just it's about how to use their system and how to use Pacer and oh, stuff. Oh, that sounds so boring. Oh yeah, and and but if if you don't like, it'll be like okay, so here's where you click to whatever, and okay. then it'll like give you a little prompt. Click here, so like it makes you be like, did you see what I just said? Now you must do it. So then you have to do it, and then like <laughs> highlight a different part of the page. 
do-da-da. Now click here. And you're like, oh my gosh. Like, okay, got it. Next. And it's like, no, you must go through all of these clicks before you can hit next. I'm like, why? Southern District, come on. That's the thing about, and that's, that's what it is about federal court. What it is about federal court is that they don't, if you don't get it exactly right, it's done. Like you're not, Bye. you're not getting it at all. Like there's no, right. there's no room for error at all. Whereas like state court, circuit court, they might just be like, listen, our caseload, our caseload is big enough. Yeah. Okay. You may, you may have meant to say, you know, the, instead of the, or whatever, but in federal the court, instead of the, I know that's like the same thing. That was a terrible example, but you know, <laughs> if you, if you, if you, you know, use an ambiguous term as opposed to a very specific term, like there's going to be no, there's going to be no, um, they're not going to try to, they're not going to let it slide. You know what I mean? I agree. Like, they're going to, they're going to kick it back. Like, especially if you're doing like technical filing stuff, if you, if you get the names wrong, if you put the wrong signature block, if you do any of those things that you might be able to get away with in circuit court, you're not going to be able to get away with that in federal court. They're going to kick it back and they're going to remember that you did that. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. They take no prisoners, man. They, they were, this is the, this is the idiot attorney that doesn't know how to do a pleading. Like, there he is, you know, and and by the way, like filing deadlines. Yep, yep, and they don't mess around. Like they're faster. Like at least in the circuit, um, like circuit civil. Uh, again, like I only had like the one case that I really kind of got to experience this with, but I'm glad that I had it because you know in the future when that happens, I'm going to be ready to do. I'm actually super excited. I, I hope I get a federal case soon. Like they're, I I enjoy the challenge of it, and I like the fast the fact that it goes fast. So it, on the circuit or on the civil side, for us. Um, the reason that, that we wanted to get stuff into federal court was because of how quick that it goes. And also for whatever reason, I haven't, uh, again, haven't really got to experience this firsthand, but the word on the street is, is that they're more conservative. So like when you're a defense, when you're on the defense side, you want a judge that's going to tend to be more defense oriented, right? So it's better to get into, into a federal courthouse because A, they're going to go faster and B, they're going to be more conservative. So I, I'm just excited to get in there and, and see, like, because um, for whatever reason, I practiced for a firm, like, when I was on the defense side, like, the, the general rule of defense firms is make it take as long as possible. Because, you know, defense firms are getting paid by the hour, right? So you're getting paid Isn't it, what? what is it? Isn't it delay, deny, defend? Isn't that the mantra? I could see that. I've never heard for that. For civil before. defense firms? I could, I could 100% agree with that. But... Or, or see that, but for whatever reason, the firm that I was at, like they wanted to push cases. They, they, like I had deadlines that I had to meet as far as like getting like initial discovery completed, getting plaintiff's deposition done, getting mediation done, and then getting your pretrial all set up and having it set for trial, right? And so generally, they wanted us to have our first like trial set within about a year. And like that's not super common, like, you know. Again, only having price for the one defense firm, but the guys that I met and talked to, and then also kind of what I was seeing, like one of the strategies that I learned being a defense attorney was time is on time is an advantage for us. Like I had a case in point, I had a, um, a case that was very bad for me. It was a big case. It was a rollover accident over on Merritt Island in Brevard County. And my client allegedly um, was fiddling around with her brand new car and she had like a, she's an older lady, nicest lady in the world, just really just the nicest lady in the world. And she was, she had just bought the car like the week before and she was, it had like a, a really fancy computer, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the dashboard, like most modern cars do. Right. 
And so being that she's like in her 60s, she's playing with it. And she's not paying attention to the road, and she actually. What are you talking about? Like, I'm sorry. What are you talking about? Like the uh, the screen? Like the HUD, you know, the heads up display. That's what I. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. All right. She's playing with that, trying to figure it all out. And she shouldn't have been. She should have been parked on the side of the road, figuring it out. I'm not making excuses for her, but that's what she's doing. And she um she drifts into oncoming traffic and gets into a head-on collision with a guy who was coming the other direction. Collision estimated probably around 40 miles an hour. So pretty significant collision. Um, he rolls over in the accident and he's older as well. He's in like his eighties. And so like, I mean, like we're talking like, you know, obviously airbags deploy, he's upside down suspended by his seatbelt. And so he has to be like cut from the car by the fire department who arrives on scene. Like they actually like cut him down so he can like fall to the ground. Right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 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 I mean, like it's a, it's a big accident. And so like he's airlifted to, um, I want to say it was. Yeah, he was airlifted to Cape Canaveral Hospital, and he was doing so poorly. They were like, get him out of here. You need to get him to, to Holmes Regional. So they pack him up, and they airlift him over to Holmes Regional, and that, that's where he gets his treatment. He's in ICU for like, I don't know, like a week or whatever, and then he's in, like, he's in, um, he's in rehab for like three months after that, and he's just in a bad way, just in a really bad way. And so, you know, as a defense attorney, like, I get in there, and I'm like, all right, liability is out. Like, she's going she's gonna to be found liable. There's, there's really no way. I mean, like, she's a very nice lady, um, but like, there's really no liability argument here, right? So, all right, what am I going to focus on? I'm going to focus on causation arguments. Well, this is a really bad accident. You know, our causation arguments aren't going to be great, but he's an older gentleman. So I get all of his old medical records from like the 10 years leading up to it. And like I find, I find out, so like their, the crux of their argument was traumatic brain injury. So in, for those people that don't know, traumatic brain injuries in, in our world, first of all, they're devastating injuries. They will, can, at their worst, they can make you a completely different person. They can make it so that you don't know who your friends and your loved ones are anymore, which is an awful thing to have to live through for, you know, like your friends and your family who have to like take care of you now. Um, and then even worse, it can make it so that, you know, you're, you're in a vegetative state, right? You're, you're having to be cared for 24 hours a day. You have to be fed, you know, your, you know, your, your waste has to be disposed of. You have to be cleaned. But, you know, you are biologically alive, but functionally you're dead. Makes sense? Did any of that happen in this case? He didn't get that far. I'm just trying to, like, explain kind of, like, how bad, like, traumatic brain injuries can be. So where he got to was, if I recall correctly now, because it's been over a year, he got to the point where his cognitive processes had been significantly affected. Like, so he remembered who he was, and he remembered who his wife was, and, like, remembered who his, like, kids and stuff were. But, like, his memory was genuinely bad. He had trouble getting stuff done. He couldn't walk very well anymore afterwards. And so I was going through his records and I found out that he was having cognitive difficulties prior to the accident. So then, of course, that's the defense, right? The defense is how much of this is the accident and how much of this is he's 85. He's already on the way down, you know, and as, as, as cold as it is to say, and this is one of the reasons why I made the jump to being a plaintiff is because I don't like talking this way. I, I like representing the person. Um, but you know, it's a legitimate thing you have to consider in cases like this is when they're 85 and they're in a a really nasty accident like this, you know, you've got to consider, you know, what, how much of the cognitive decline is the accident and how much of it is him just getting older. And so that's why those medical records from before that are so important. Now I I explain, I'm saying all this to get back to my point, the original point, which was time, right? Making it slow it down, take your time, right? As a defense attorney. So I was actually being told, like, you need to push this case forward 
And so I was like, all right, you know, I'm trying to push it forward. And we had run into some pitfalls and whatever. I, I don't remember the exact nature of it, but we had some motions and stuff, discovery issues and whatnot. And, you know, this is easy, a multi-million dollar case in, in front of the right jury and tried by the right attorney. And the attorney that was handling the case on the opposing counsel was a, I had never worked with him before, but, you know, great guy. I enjoyed working with him. He's a good guy to work against, but like rock star attorney, right? Had a pedigree, been around for a while, you know, probably like, I don't know, 20, 25 years, been practicing, you know, monster litigator kind of thing. Like this guy was not going to fuck it up if we got into it in, in front of a jury, right? So these are all things that I'm considering. So like, I'm not in any hurry <laughs> to try this case in front of this guy, right? Because I know that he's going to do a good job. And like, while I, 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 I'm confident in my skills as a litigator and I know I can put on a good argument and, and make a good case, uh, I'm, I, I've been doing this for five, six years, you know, and, and I have a lot more, to, I have a lot to learn. So, you know, I'm not in any hurry. Well, what ends up happening is, is that this, this, this particular plaintiff turns terminal and it gets to the point where they are, the family just is done. They just, they're done. They don't want to mess with it anymore. And so all of a sudden I'm getting a couple of emails because, oh, now I remember we were having trouble getting him assessed. So I'd set him up to like be assessed by a neuropsychologist who can help, you know, obviously give him a, a good examination to determine like, and, 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 and he can read the medical records from the 10 years prior and then like look at him where he's at now and say, okay, you know, he was affected like this from the accident, you know, and, and we get our guy to go in there and, and make that assessment. So we were trying to get him in there and every time the, the plaintiff said, okay, you know, we, we're going on his schedule, right? Like. I'm trying to make it as easy for this guy to show up as possible. And, and twice he didn't go. And then what ends up happening, like, uh, I think the week after the second time he failed to show up was, you know, he's just not looking good. It's looking like he's not going to make it through like the next like couple of weeks. He's in the hospital again for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, and then they gave me like a bargain bin offer and we like immediately took it. Like it wasn't even like, I called up the adjuster and I was like, you'd be stupid not to take this offer. You need to take this offer like right now and get out of this case before they hit you for like, you know, a $10 million judgment. And they're wow. like, all right, we're done, we're out. And like, that's why, that's why de like delay on the defense side, like not unethical delay, like you don't just delay things just to delay them. But I'm in no hurry, if I'm a defense attorney, I'm in no hurry to get it done because things like that happen, people die. Like weird things like, or, or, or like the fight goes out of, of the plaintiff. Maybe their house, again, this is why I don't like being a defense attorney. Maybe their house gets under foreclosure and they need like a quick payday. So they're like, they go to their attorney and they're like, I need this case settled right now. A civil defense attorney, we should point out the distinction. What did I say? You said a defense attorney, but I'm one. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. A civil defense attorney. So like, all right. So um, for anybody who might be interested because uh, I didn't even know this position existed until I became a lawyer. Because just I don't know why you just don't think like this. Is you see all the guys on the billboards? You see like the Morgan and Morgans and the Dan Newlands and the Steinger, Isco and Finers and like guys like me, right? We we represent people who have been in, in car accidents. You don't think about the other attorneys on the other side, the guys that, that represent the people who actually caused the accidents. And most people don't realize that when you get insurance, like State Farm, Geico, Progressive, whoever it might be, it doesn't really matter, whatever your car insurance is, under Florida state law, that insurance company is required by law to provide an attorney to you in the off, in the off chance that you get sued by a guy like Morgan or Morgan or a guy like me. And so what there is, is this entire career of attorney 
who does civil defense cases and they get hired by State Farm, they get hired by Geico, they get hired by Progressive or like auto owners and like that's what I did. I worked real, I, I worked lock and step with State Farm and auto owners were the two big ones that I worked with, but I also did cases for, for Geico and I think we may have done it, I think I may have done a case either, I know I did a case with Progressive, um, but I may have, maybe I haven't done a case for Progressive, but anyway, um, and there's some excellent defense attorneys out there. Like I, I, I worked with a lot of them. I, I, you know, I, I met. They're, they're yeah, but I think what you're what you're trying to say is like it's a totally different mindset. Basically, right. you're trying to make get to the nuts and bolts of this because a lot of times plaintiffs' attorneys are asking for the moon, but maybe it's only worth uh, you know, uh, Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, but like I mean, you know, the opposite of that is is that we would always start super low. Give them like some like little like, you know, like bear I wonder if there was a monetary incentive at the firm that you worked for to push cases forward, especially because you were in your in that world you're billing hourly as opposed to in plaintiffs' world where you're working on a contingency fee and trying to make the recovery as high as possible. So okay, so I don't know this for a fact, so I'm going to speculate here. So if anybody from my old firm ends up listening to this, like I don't actually know this. My my thought was this is that we had a lot of cases. And we had a pretty good reputation because um, it, it, it was it was a good good firm to work for. I, I consider myself lucky uh, having worked there. I think I had, you know I was overworked, but that just kind of comes with the territory. Um, but we did good work. We did good solid work. You know, like the guys that I worked with, like no one was doing anything unethical. Like realistically, I'm like racking my brain right now. I don't think I saw anything unethical happen at my firm, which was pretty cool. And like we built the cases we saw fit. And the issue I think wasn't that. The what I'm trying to say is that we had a lot of cases, and that there was like a certain kind of like um, I think there was like a maximum value that not a maximum value that's a, that's a bad way of putting it, but like there was kind of like an average case price, I guess. Like so, car accidents generally you could bill x x on on a, on, a, on this kind of car accident case. You could generally bill y on like in total on this car accident case. So you know because there's other defense firms out there, you didn't want to like you know run up the bill on, you know, needlessly run up the bill on your car accident cases because they'll just go pick, you know, State Farm will go pick somebody else to go, you know, work the case for them. So, you know, but that that, that being said, it, it, you know, each case is different and it, each attorney is different for that matter. So like, as you're talking to the adjuster and, and you're explaining to them, like, you know, like as you're going through the case, like, hey, I need to hire this investigator to go do this and that and the other, or I need to hire like a neuropsych in this case, like hiring neuropsychs wasn't normal. That's not like par for the course. That's a special case because you know, like we had like a head-on collision, and the guy was rolled over, and now he's got like we've got evidence that he had cognitive decline prior to the accident, and that's the whole case. So um, I need like I am not a, a neuropsych. I, I'm not. A, I'm not even a. I'm not a. I'm not a neurologist or a, a neurosurgeon. I need to hire somebody who is. So they can explain this better to me, so that I can better assess the case and go to the opposing counsel and say, listen, my guy says X, Y, and Z. I think that means A, B, and C, and I think a jury is going to return one, two, and three, and then listen to his response to it. And I don't even really know how I got off on this, but you know, yeah, I, <laughs> I think that that's why we were asked to go faster, you know, or, or put put time deadlines on it. Like those time deadlines were general, you know, like it was a general thing. It wasn't like a if you don't hit this, then you know you're going to get in trouble. Like that never happened. But we were encouraged to. You know, have the plaintiff's depot done in three months. Have the initial initial discovery done before then. You know, get your mediation scheduled within six months of getting the case. And, you know, you should have the trial set within you know a year out from when you were getting you know from when you got the case. But of course, you know things happen. Things come up. Uh, you know. 
Like you know, for me in the in the criminal world, yeah, no kidding. And in the criminal world, it's it's like you know sometimes the delays of cases from a defense standpoint is helpful, and sometimes it's really not. Like if your client is in jail, and all of a sudden you know the case is getting delayed and delayed and delayed, you know they're they're stuck there without getting their day in court. You know, things might take longer than you, you'd like. I, I had a case that went on for four and a half years. Turned out the guy was 100%, he was innocent. He was legally innocent of what he did and what he was accused of. And I was saying that the entire time, but it didn't stop the fact that the process took, you know, four and a half years and three of it he spent in jail. Yep. And, you know, so I, I think it's interesting to talk about different tactics about why it might make sense to kind of drag a case out but also i'll tell you it, in my world it, it can totally cut both ways and now with covid uh things just suck i mean speedy trial is turned off it is yeah. a constitutional guarantee that doesn't exist at the moment and it is absolutely screwing everything up I mean, you got scenarios where people are sitting in jail waiting to have their case heard but because no trials are happening right now, because we can't get a jury together in the same room, uh, they're stuck holding the bag, and they might not even be guilty of what they're accused of. But they can't get to a trial, and gonna so have, it's going to have to go like it's going to have to go remote. I mean, we're going to have to like as much as I hate to say it, and as much as I don't want to, because I like standing in front of the group. I want to stand in front of those people. And I want to see all their faces, and then there's also like that air of like charisma you can kind of like rally to yourself and like being in the room with other people like there's that that feel that you don't get remotely but you know uh you know there's just no way we're we're not living in that world right now like one day we'll get back to it but like you're right i'm not in the criminal world but even in the civil world like because whenever we're able to start having trials again you guys are going to obviously take precedent and you should take precedent and that's the right thing to do but we've got to get remote trials set up because, and the jurors are gonna have to come in remotely because the system is gonna—I don't know what's gonna happen. Like, I don't think it's gonna collapse, but I think that's a little bit hyperbolic. But, like, right. you've got to have clients that are sitting in jail that need to get their case resolved. I'll tell you my frustrations with COVID. Go, oh, we're we're back on. Yes, yeah, so sorry, I had to take a little break there. Uh, but this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. So I, that was a call from a prosecutor. It's almost five o'clock. To this guy's credit, he's calling me when he'd probably rather be going home. But we have a case set for tomorrow. Now this is a misdemeanor from the end of 2019, and but for COVID, it would have been resolved like in March because okay. of speedy trial reasons, and the state has you know, only a certain amount of time to bring a case and whatever else. And I'm getting a call just now. And I've been trying to resolve this. We, we went to court in March. We finally had another court date like a month ago and then another like motion hearing. And I just keep trying to resolve it. And all of a sudden the prosecutor today is telling me, hey, there's new discovery in this case eight months later okay. um, that may affect whether your guy violated his probation And I'm just seeing it, you know, tonight. And I happen to like this prosecutor. So to his credit, he's saying, I'm just now seeing it too because everything's so screwed up with the system. But it's it's a real problem for me because I've had my guy being delayed for all of this time and I keep showing up ready to go and trying to resolve it. And every time it's something new, 
about why it can't get resolved. And I've got no enforcement mechanism right. because the Supreme Court told Speedy. And here we are. Right, so for and people who don't know, the way that we get things resolved in the legal world is set up for trial. Because come hell or high water, the case is going to get tried. So if you can't agree on the outcome of the case, which is what a settlement is or what a plea deal is, you set it for trial and then you let a jury of your peers figure it out. And since we don't have that, that's what Mike's talking about. Yeah, and, the, and also it, it, it carries all these other things. Like you can't bring new charges after a certain amount of time with Speedy if it's from the same incident and whatever else. And it's, it's a constitutional guarantee that basically says, hey, we don't want criminal cases looming over people's heads forever. And we want to get this thing moving. And now we just have this incredible backlog of cases where we're addressing a case, a misdemeanor. This isn't a felony. It's a lower level case. From, I don't know, 2019, here eight months later. And that's, you know, frustrating. It's frustrating for me for sure. Definitely for the judge. Also for my client. And, you know, probably even for the prosecutor. But at the same time, they're getting this unintended benefit of being able to bring new discovery eight months later, which would have never flown um, in real life. So we're just in kind of the twilight zone. Yeah, so how many cases do you have backed up right now? I have a um, triple homis uh, vehicular homicide trial that was supposed to go. That's my most serious one at the moment, and it was supposed and it's a trial case, and it was supposed to go back in April, and it's been kicked every month, not from my own doing. Um, I keep it set for trial, and it just now it's set for October. And there's no telling whether that's even gonna go then. And it's tough, it's it's definitely tough for my client. I mean, in that case, she's got a GPS monitor. Luckily, she's not in custody, but you know, she, with these charges, basically her work has, she's pretty much lost her job. And uh, while this is pending, I mean, it's an extraordinarily serious case. She's looking at 45 years on this. And, um, and it's a sad case all around no doubt uh but you know it needs this is a great example it needs to go to trial because the prosecution isn't offering a plea that makes sense the facts of the case are very interesting where my position is she shouldn't even be being charged criminally under florida law but she is and so the way we resolve it is with a jury and and that brings me to another point chris like who are these juries? Like when we do go back, let's say you're right. Let's say that it's, well, let's say you're not right. Let's say that it's going to be Zoom or nothing. Um, that's your that's your thing. But let's just say we are going to go back in person. Who are the jurors that are going to show up? Are these people that believe that COVID's not real or they're just not that worried about it? And or or are they coming there out of obligation? Do they want to leave? Are they going to be paying attention to the to the case? This is why I don't think that they're going to be able to do it in person. Not until we've reached whatever. I mean, I don't even know what phase three is, but not phase two. You know, where people are starting to feel more comfortable being in crowds, because I know there's a lot of people right now that definitely don't feel comfortable in crowds. So, you know, once we get to that point, like, let's just assume, let's just say we snap our fingers tomorrow and I guess it, it just all goes away. You know, obviously everybody would be fine going out and doing it then, but realistically, like, we can't send a letter or, or, or a summons, a jury summons, 
to only a certain group of people. You can't do that. Right. You, you gotta you gotta send it to everyone or no one. And so if we can't, if and it's a legitimate concern that I haven't actually heard expressed yet. You know, like there are going to be people who, if they're sent a jury summons, I mean, there's always people that don't come, but there's going to be more people, and they're going to blame COVID, and they're not going to be wrong. And so, you know, that's a legitimate issue. Like, what do we do there? Like, that's why I think that we're going to have to do it remotely. Or they're going to have to have some kind of public service announcement that they blast all over the news and all over social media and everything like that to assure that there is a strong process that has been decided upon by the judiciary in which people's safety, in order to slow the spread of the disease, if you come in for jury duty, like, you're not going to be, it's not going to be like a cattle call. Like, everyone will be spaced out. Like, I don't know, maybe they put them in the parking lot and, like, put up, you know, I, I don't know, some kind of, like, um, some kind of um, assessment area in the parking lot where they can do, like, the typical, you know, like, you know, they gather everyone's biographical data and they do, like, the, they have, like, a judge go down there and give them kind of, like, the rah-rah, this is jury duty, like, do your civic duty kind of speech. Right. And then they can kind of, like, shepherd people to the different courthouses or the different uh, courtrooms that they need to go to. But whatever, whatever that process is, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not the one that has to make that decision, you know, I was of the camp, honestly, like two weeks ago, I was like, we can't do it until, until we can get people back in the courtrooms again. But honestly, man, I'm at the point now where it, it's got to be, we, we've got to get, get going. It's been too long. You know, we need, to, we need to get trials back underway for all the reasons that we've been talking about. And the only way that I see forward doing it because of the, because of the, the wonderful issue that you just articulated that, that they're going to be a, there's going to be a good chunk of people that just won't show up because of their safety. And they'll say, you know, do what you will find me, arrest me, whatever being in violation of the, of, of, of a, of a jury sum. They'd rather take that chance than, you know, than go to jury duty. I think that the way that we got to do it is some kind of maybe staging area and then we have like you know i don't know rooms that are created maybe we have like a, maybe there's like an off-site location like i've heard of i've heard of some jurisdictions doing renting out auditoriums for this that's a really smart idea because then you can get more rooms or you can spread them out along like the you know uh throughout the stadium right you can put up like those plastic barriers I guess do it that way. Were they gonna like? Would they put a camera on each person, or would the jury? Would the, would the I I think you're like I think you're sort of like front and center. Like you can even rent out like a high school gym, yeah, and have people six feet apart and not really do much more, just because if you've got fifty or a hundred people in there and that thing seats six hundred or seven hundred, that's pretty right. easy to do. Right. I mean, everyone could have their own row, and then you're like, <laughs> you know, down there. You know, like you're in an auditorium. That would be pretty Yeah, cool. like like you like you're you're about to perform or something like that. But getting ready for a pep rally. Look, I agree with you. I, I, I don't like the idea of a Zoom I had a Zoom trial, but luckily it wasn't with a jury, it was with a judge and it was in a family law case. Um but it was that was that was weird unto itself. I mean we got through it, but if I'm sitting here trying to do jury selection in a criminal case where it's I mean, to me it's life and death. I mean, or at least you know, being your having your uh, freedom taken away from you for potentially ever, right. or not, uh, which to me is kind of like a life and death thing. Even if we're not talking about death, death, which also, by the way, what are we going to do about those? That's still happening, death penalty cases. So, you know, yeah, I want to be able to look a juror in the eye and not through a screen. I want to be able to 
see their whole body language. And yes, it's a, uh, no, this, this is no good um, when it comes to a criminal trial. Uh, Not for any weird reason, but for the fact that a defendant is guaranteed a jury of their peers. It's the same reason you're allowed to cross-examine witnesses and you have the confrontation clause and the right to confront people. You know, doing that through a screen is uh, doable, but is it really guaranteeing the full uh, force and effect of of what uh, a a defendant is constitutionally guaranteed? Look, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I'm with you. I, I I'm much. I feel like I'm my best self when I'm in front of, in, in person, in front of others. Yeah. I don't even like talking on the phone that much. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do in person. Like I was, I, you know, uh, I. This is the ninth episode of this that I've done, and every time it's in person, it's more natural, and it's it, it's 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 easier to do, and and. This is an easy conversation. I'm enjoying this conversation, but it would have been cooler if, uh, if we could have done it in person. It would have been. And I think we tried to do that, but we logistically just, it didn't work out. You just had to live in Orlando, Mike. Come on, man. Well, Orlando is the place to be. Hey, quick shout out. Orlando, the city beautiful, the most up-and-coming city in Florida. It just ain't about Mickey anymore. This is the place to be. And you know it too, Chris. You know it. I don't. I don't know what else is going on in uh, Orlando other than, than Mickey. Where are you, St. Pete? Yeah, I am in St. Pete. What is that? Just the most. What is that? Just the most beautiful city that exists with pristine water and awesome bridges and great restaurants and cool hangouts and awesome microbrews and cool bars. Is that all St. Pete is? We because had, we definitely had the microbrews until about I don't know three months ago. I know St. Pete is awesome. I love it there. It's a good spot, man. So is Orlando. So is Orlando. All joking aside, uh, we haven't been over there in a while either. Like we used to have the, we used to have the, uh, the mouse passes, but this year we just for, we forewent them. It ended up being the right year to do it. Yeah, go figure. I, this is the first year we got the mouse passes. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and we got them in February. Oh no! Are they going to do like a rain check? Are they going to like extend it, it out? Or it was like okay, you had a couple options, but to make a long story short, they said they were suspending. We had it on like an annual payment subscription or whatever, yeah. and they said we're going to suspend it for the months that uh, you know the parks closed, and you can either tack those months on at the end and keep paying, uh, or like just it ends when your subscription ends and you just didn't pay for those months. So we opted for that one. And next thing you know, when the parks opened, we got charged for all of the months it was closed in one foul swoop. And we're like, what the heck, Disney? And then there was like all of these, uh, you know, internet, the internet was blowing up because they did it to everybody and it was a total accident. But yeah, okay, fine. So we have our passes back and uh, okay. So yeah, I guess we get to go to Disney again in the era of COVID with my four and six year old. And it's just like, no, this is the worst possible year to have Disney passes. Thank you. And, oh, by the way, it's the summer, so I'm in blackout season anyway, even though the park's open and I'm still paying for my thing. So I'm going to effectively have gotten February where we went one time and then like a few months uh, around Christmas. But even that has blackout dates too. So, yeah, this year blows to get Disney tickets. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we definitely got lucky on that one. But going back to the, um, I guess going back to the trials, so like 
I have a little bit of a different take on it, I think, because, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in the civil arena, you know, um, and I think that it's the, the right to, we don't have, obviously we don't have a right to a speedy trial, but also I think that the, the stakes just aren't quite as high as they are criminally. You know, we don't have the, you know, if we lose, then they go to jail or whatever, you know, for us, it's, it's almost always about money. So if we lose, then obviously my client loses out on money and then, you know, I have to go out and try to find a way to, you know, settle out their, their accounts, their medical bills, whatever they might have outstanding. So for me, you know, I trying to keep the, the system from backlogging is, you know, moving things forward, you know, trial or, uh, you know, on a trial basis, because like we were saying earlier, they, uh, the, um, you know, the trials don't, or excuse me, the trials help push the cases forward. Well, yeah, but I mean, don't sell yourself short, right? I mean, for these people, they're injured. They are probably, oh, yeah. um, you well, know. I'm not trying to say, no, I'm not trying to say that there's like no consequences. There absolutely are. But what I'm trying to say is like the other, like, how am I trying to say this? Because um, I mean, like a lot of times, like the, these cases, like the, the car accident cases that usually make it to trial, are like yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars that are on the line. So like, we're not talking about like 500 bucks, you know, you're trying to make, you know, rent for the last week or whatever. Sure. So like you're, you're talking about a serious. All right, man. So we've been going for about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes now. We've got plenty of stuff. I mean, you know how we do. We could easily go for like another five hours with no with no hesitation. So we'll have to definitely do it again. I really appreciate you being on and uh, giving me your insight. Man, it's really been a, a pleasure. And, and I'm just really excited about everything that's going on with you. There's no doubt in my mind about why you're so successful right now. Um, and it's, it's sort of an honor for me to be on your podcast. I think this is a great idea and everything that is going on with it. And excited to see where your practice goes from here. But I know probably more than most, having been your trial partner in the first place back at the PDs, uh, why you're the right choice for personal injury. And uh, it's just really fun for me to, to take part in this project with you. So thanks again for having me on, man. Hey, the honor is all mine, dude. I really appreciate it. But uh, all right, so we're at the end. Why don't you shout out uh, your firm, let people know how to get in touch with you and what you do for a living. Sure, Pinola Law Firm, like I say, we specialize in criminal defense, trial, and appellate work. We uh, take all cases from misdemeanors to very serious felonies. Uh, you could Google me at Pinella, that's P like Paul, A-N, like Nancy, E-L-L-A, Law Firm, um, and sort of read some reviews and kind of see where we're at. But again, we do criminal defense all over Florida, and we also practice in family law and what I call criminals friends. So traffic issues and anything related that way. If you're in trouble, um, you wanna go ahead and give us a call and we're happy to talk to you free of charge and go from there. Thanks again for having me on. Absolutely, you're the best. And if you've got a criminal issue and you come to me, I'm gonna be sending you to Mike because Mike knows how to do criminal law better than just about anybody else that I know. So uh, as always, I'm Chris Wagoner at Wagoner Law, personal injury attorney. Uh, if you get hurt and it's not your fault, I can probably help you out. Give me a call, 727-685-8000, or you can just email me, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, at wagonerlaw.com. All right, I'll catch you, everybody, on the next one.